Hear now the word of God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Since our reading of God's word this morning, let us turn to the Lord and ask his blessing on his word. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for your whole word, which gives us light in the midst of the darkness of this world, the darkness of sin, the ignorance of our minds. We thank you for this text that is before us. We do pray that you would bless it to us this morning. Bless its reading and now its preaching. We pray that by your Spirit who inspired these words long ago, that you would now enable us to respond with faith and repentance to your word as it comes to us, your people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, in the opening uh, section of the book of Romans, the first major section of Romans, the Apostle Paul explains how all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are under the judgment of sin. And in the midst of that discussion, Paul says something about Jewish people, the Jewish people of his day. He says that they, they have the, the, the law of God and that they believe that this law of God, in this law, they have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Now, there are obviously many criticisms that Paul makes of Jew and Gentile alike in these opening chapters of Romans. But he's not saying there's anything wrong with this belief that Jewish people had. They were not wrong to think that in that law of Moses that they had the embodiment of knowledge and truth. But we might wonder, where exactly did they get such an idea? Now, there are many places in the Old Testament that might come to mind, but there is perhaps no more likely place where they would have gotten such an idea than Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is one of the most you might say, famous parts of the scriptures. 
It is known often as the Great Psalm or the Long Psalm. 176 verses. It's the longest single chapter in all of Scripture. Maybe you've decided you were going to read it sometime and you started. And you remarked as you turned page after page, this is, this is a very, very long chapter of Scripture. And one of the, another thing that we note about this psalm, another thing that makes it famous, is its uh, acrostic pattern. An acrostic poem is one in which it follows the letters of the alphabet. And so the uh, Psalm 119 is divided into 22 stanzas, or 22, uh, you might say, sections that correspond to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the first, we've looked at the first two stanzas. And in each verse of the first stanza, the first letter is the letter Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In the second stanza, verses 9 through 16, every verse begins with the letter Bet, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and on it goes. But in a way, the thing of, that we need to note about Psalm 119 is not so much how long it is or the kind of pattern or the kind of, kind of poetry that it represents. But what's really important is the substance of it. What is in this poem? What does it talk about? And this poem has this laser focus upon the Word of God and especially the law of God. This is why I suggest to you that the Jews of Paul's day might have looked at Psalm 119 and thought the law of God is the embodiment of knowledge and truth. It's very interesting thinking about Psalm 119. If you reflect on the Old Testament... I mean, there are so many important events in the Old Testament history. You might think of Abraham and the promises to Abraham. You might think of the exodus from Egypt. You might think of God's giving the covenants. You might think of the temple in Jerusalem. You might think of the throne of David. How many of those things does Psalm 119 talk about? Not a single one of them. It doesn't mention any of those things. It focuses on God's word, particularly on the law of God. And in these opening two stanzas that were just read, we see this theme presented so clearly before us that God's law requires comprehensive obedience and it requires the holistic devotion of God's people. So let's look at these two stanzas. We'll look first at verses 1 through 8, the Aleph stanza. Now, the first two verses of our psalm raise a very crucial question before us. How are God's people blessed? In a way, there couldn't be a more important question, could there? How do we stand blessed before God? And Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, gives us an answer right off the bat. The, the initial answer is this. It is through walking in the way or walking in the law of the Lord. It is through keeping the Lord's testimonies. That is how God's people are blessed. And yet as we look at the first four verses, the first half of this stanza, we can see that we need to elaborate on this answer a bit. 
it's not just in general that God's people are blessed through keeping his law. It's that we see that God's law requires a comprehensive, thorough obedience. In other words, God's law is not the kind of thing that you just obey once in a while. It's not the kind of thing that you just give your attention to here or there. When it's convenient, it is something that is to be constantly before us, is to shape everything that we do. Notice some of the things we find in these opening four verses. In verse 1, we see that we are to, our way is to be blameless, without blame all the time. In verse 2, we find that we are to seek God with our whole heart. Not with half your heart. Not even with 90% of it. With our whole heart, we are to seek God. In verse 3, blessed are those who do no wrong. Not just, not too much wrong, but no wrong. And then in verse 4, God has commanded his precepts to be kept diligently with all of our attention. It's remarkable, it's striking to see in these opening four verses this emphasis upon the thoroughness of the obedience that God requires in his law. But please note something else in these opening verses. In verse 2, we are reminded that we are to seek God with our whole heart. It's true that Psalm 119 says so much about obeying God's law, following his decrees. But right from the beginning of this psalm, verse 2 reminds us that keeping God's law is not an end in itself, you might say. Why should we be diligent in keeping God's law? Because it leads us to God himself. That's what's really important. If you seek to obey God's law and forget about God, well, you've missed the point. It does no good. We are to seek God himself as we seek to obey his law. So these opening four verses, they set a pretty high bar. They, uh, they take us to lofty heights setting this great ideal before us. And then it seems that the, the second part of this opening stanza, verses 5 through 8, they take us a bit back down to earth. Notice that verse 5 begins with a prayer. Now, I just want to uh, say something about this briefly. You might look at Psalm 119 as a whole, as one big long prayer. That would be an accurate way to think about Psalm 119. But you see, within this long psalm, there are many individual prayers, many short prayers. Now, some verses simply make statements, but then there are other verses that offer short petitions to the Lord. Verse 5 is the first of these short prayers that we find. The psalmist says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. And here is another very, very important thing that we find early in this long psalm. The psalmist recognizes that he needs help. 
He has just confessed that God's law requires this comprehensive obedience and the psalmist realizes that he cannot do it on his own strength. He asks that the Lord might make him steadfast. He needs help. He knows his limits. He knows his weakness. And so in verse 6, he says, then, in other words, if God helps him, then he says, I shall not be put to shame. And this puts another important thing before us. The psalm begins by saying, blessed are those, blessed are those who walk in the ways of God's law. But as soon as we hear that, we can't help but think of something else as well. If we are blessed in the way of obedience, blessed in our keeping of God's law, well, what does that imply? That implies that something else is going to happen if we are disobedient. And here the psalmist seems to be contemplating that. He seems to recognize that if he is not obedient, he will be put to shame. He will suffer God's displeasure, God's judgment upon him. And so he asks for steadfastness, recognizing that he does not want to suffer shame before God and before others. And yet it makes us, this makes us wonder, doesn't it? If God's law requires not just a little obedience, not just occasional obedience, but a thorough, comprehensive obedience at all times, and if this psalmist knows that he's a sinner who needs help, perhaps we wonder to ourselves, is it already too late for this psalmist? Has he already run afoul of God's commands? Has he already suffered God's displeasure? Now true, the final verses of this first stanza have a generally positive uh, outlook. You might notice in these verses, uh, he says, uh, he contemplates uh, that uh, he will not be put to shame if God helps him in verse 6. In verse 7, he will praise God as he learns his righteous rules. Verse 8, he says, I will keep your statutes. So the psalmist mentality is generally positive here. But did you note how this first stanza ends? He says, do not utterly forsake me. It's as if the psalmist is already admitting that he has been forsaken by God. Again, that he has been put to shame. And now he does not want God to bring his judgment against him in its fullness. And so... This first stanza, despite all the wonderful things it says, and despite certain expressions of confidence that the psalmist uh, offers, it ends on a rather down note, doesn't it? Do not utterly forsake me, O Lord, he says. And brothers and sisters, of course, we can't look at this whole psalm this morning, but if you, as even we consider these opening stanzas, and if you read this psalm on your own and seek to learn from it and understand it, one thing to see throughout this psalm is that there is a tension that runs all the way through it. On the one hand, this psalmist declares his love for God's law, his desire to keep God's law. And on the other hand, the psalmist continually comes back to the fact that he is a sinner who fails 
a sinner who has experienced the judgment of God, a sinner who is afraid lest he experience God's curse again or in its fullness. He has a zeal for God's law and yet seems to constantly recognize that it's a little bit out of his grasp. It is beyond what he can measure up to. And here we might think of another text from the book of Romans. Perhaps you're familiar with Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul describes the person who in his heart delights in God's law, desires to do it, and yet finds again and again that he cannot carry out the desires that he has. Who This person that Paul describes right, continually finds that sin is blocking his way from keeping God's law as he desires. And yet Romans 7 ends on a wonderful note. Romans 7 ends by saying, who will rescue us from this body of death? And Paul says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that there is a great resolution to this tension, to this, on the one hand, this desire to keep God's law, and on the other hand, this constant failure because of sin. Christ provides God's great answer, God's great salvation. But yet as we come back to Psalm 119, we recognize that Psalm 119 never gives such a clear solution. It never has such a clear resolution. I just told you how Romans 7 ends. Do you know how Psalm 119 ends? In verse 176, the psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Not exactly the most positive way to end. I am a lost sheep. Psalm 119 itself never really resolves this tension. Psalm 119 knows that there is an answer from God. And yet, it never explains so clearly what that answer is. Not as clearly as Paul does in Romans. And so as we come back to Psalm 119 and we now look at the second stanza, we can see that rather than offer some great resolution to this tension that the psalmist creates in the first stanza, he sort of doubles down on his initial point. Whereas the first stanza talks about this comprehensive obedience that God's law requires, in this second stanza, from a somewhat different angle, the psalmist explains how God's law demands holistic devotion. A devotion in every part of our being. Body and soul. Let's see how the psalmist works that out in verses 9 through 16. We can already begin to see this theme in verse 9. Verse 9 is uh, one of the more familiar verses in Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. So here we see something important. God's law requires holistic devotion in the sense that it requires devotion from us our entire lives. Now you young people who are here today, I want you to note this especially. God's law is not the kind of thing that is to be obeyed 
when you get big, when you're an adult. It's not just the kind of thing for your parents or your grandparents. No, it's for you as well. Even from our youth, we are to be attentive to God's Word and devote ourselves to following it. And then in verses 10 and 11, the psalmist talks about the heart. Verse 10, he says, with my whole heart I seek you. And then in verse 11, he says, I have stored up your word in my heart or treasured your word in my heart. And you see this theme of the heart is so important because throughout the scriptures, the heart, the heart is really the center of the human being. The heart is not first and foremost in scripture, the, th- the, the muscle that pumps blood through the heart or uh, th- uh, through the body. In Scripture, the heart represents who you are deep down inside. Your heart is what determines what you really love, what you really value, what's really important to you. The heart really gets to who you are. Proverbs 4.23 says that the heart is the wellspring of life. In Matthew 15, Jesus said that various sins, sins of murder, adultery, theft, they all flow from the heart. And so, what does the psalmist say? Well, the psalmist says that God and His law are the sorts of thing that we seek with our whole heart. Deep down inside, we are to be followers of God and His Word. And so that is one important way that the psalmist gets at the holistic character of our devotion to God. Now in verse 12, we find a, a bit of an interlude where the psalmist says, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. Remember, as I noted earlier, noted in the first stanza, God's law is not an end in itself, but it's about God himself. And so here we see the psalmist pausing to offer this word of praise to God. That is what is most important. But then through the rest of this stanza, verses 13 through 16, the psalmist returns back to this theme of holistic devotion. Now we saw in those earlier verses, the psalmist focused on what was inside, what's deep down inside in your heart. But you see... What is deep down inside is meant to be expressed on the outside. That's how we work as human beings, and that's how it's supposed to be with our devotion to God and His Word. And so you see in verse 13, the psalmist says, With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. You see, what's in the heart is meant to be expressed with the lips. There's this connection between our hearts and our mouths. Now, we can fool people for a while sometimes. Right? We can say things we don't really mean. Right? We can make people think we're a certain sort of person or that we have certain sort of beliefs. But what's in our heart, over time, it tends to come out from what's in our mouths. And so here the psalmist is calling for this consistency between what's in our heart, devotion to God, and what comes out of our lips. 
which is speaking of the rules of God's own mouth. You might think of, again, of Romans. Romans, uh, Romans 10 says that whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, that person will be saved. The heart and the lips, they must be one. But then in verse 14, the psalmist returns back to focusing on what is in the inside. He says in verse 14, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. And so, brothers and sisters, what delights you? Deep down inside, what makes you glad? What lifts your spirits? It's interesting that the psalmist here speaks of money or riches. And it's, it's true, isn't it, for almost every person. There is an, a sort of instinctive delight in wealth. I mean, what person would be sad to learn that he or she got a raise at work? What person is sad to see the investments in your 401k rise? What person would turn down a sudden windfall that came your way. There's something about us as human beings we love, instinctively love wealth. What the psalmist says here, he says, in the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. This is the mark of a godly person. Godly people delight in God's word even more than in riches. It's a high standard, and yet this is what the psalmist sets before us. And then in verse 15, the psalmist again moves from what is inside to what is expressed outwardly. You see in verse 15, he begins by saying, I will meditate on your precepts. Right? That's in the inside. Right? We meditate on God's word, but then he says, I will fix my eyes on your ways. You see, just as what is in the heart is meant to be expressed with our lips, so also what is expressed in our hearts is meant to be expressed with our eyes. And throughout the scriptures, again, the eye is very, very important. How do you know who a person is? Really? What does that person have his eye on? Metaphorically and even literally, what do you look at? What do you look at when you don't think anyone else is looking at you? What do you set your eye on? Here the psalmist says our eyes and our hearts need to match. We are to set our eyes on the ways of God. That is the mark of the godly person. And then the psalmist concludes this second stanza by again returning to the inside. I will delight in your statutes I will not forget your word. And that's, it's as if the psalmist knows human nature. He knows how we are as human beings, right? We delight, we are to delight in God's statutes and not forget. You see, we all forget things, don't we? And as we get older, we tend to forget more things. But what are the things you forget? Well, we tend to forget things that aren't so important to us, right? 
We tend to remember things that are really important, that we really value. That's why it's so embarrassing when people we love tell us something and we forget. Right? When your spouse says, well, honey, I just told you that yesterday and you don't remember, it's embarrassing. Because it's almost communicating that you don't really care about what your spouse says. The godly person is one who does not forget God's word. Because God's word is important to the godly. That is where our delight ought to be. Well, that brings us to the end of these first two stanzas. And I hope as we have looked at them that you have been struck by this comprehensiveness of the obedience God's law requires and also that holistic devotion that it requires of God's people. And yet, even as we see these themes set before us, the psalmist has also given us these hints. These hints about our own weakness, our own failures, our own fears of entering into God's judgment and suffering shame because of our disobedience to this wonderful word, this wonderful law of God. But brothers and sisters, we have a great privilege this morning. We as people of the new covenant may read Psalm 119 knowing God's final answer to our sin in the face of his righteous law. We know the answer of Romans 7. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we recognize the holiness and righteousness of God's law, thank God that we have a Savior who delivers us from our sin and from the judgment of God. But as we think about this for just another moment or two, I want you to reflect with me upon the utter perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of ways that we can and do describe the salvation that we have in Christ and to describe Christ's saving work for us. But one of the ways that we do that, certainly as Reformed Christians, we speak about the perfect obedience of Christ and how we rest upon the perfect righteousness of Christ which is credited to us so that we might stand before God's judgment not based on our own works, but on his perfect works. Now we talk about that. I trust that you hear about that often from this pulpit. But how often do we really think about the perfection of our Lord? It's easy to say, Christ's perfect obedience, Christ's perfect righteousness. But do we really think about it? Christ perfectly met everything that these opening stanzas of Psalm 119 describe. It's so hard for us as sinners to think about perfection. I mean, can we really even imagine what it is to perfectly love God at every moment of our entire lives? I mean, Maybe we, on occasion, get a little hint of perfection. Maybe you, uh, young people, you, maybe there's a time when you got 100% on a math quiz. And you could not have done any better. For a brief moment, you have a little sense of perfection. 
Maybe occasionally on, in sports you find something like that. I haven't bowled in decades, but there's this thing of a 300 game. To bowl a 300 game, you cannot do any better. It's perfect. But of course, bowling and math quizzes are really not that important in the big picture of things. But our Lord Jesus Christ was absolutely perfect his entire life. Even from his youth. We talked about that, didn't we? Remember the story in Luke 2 where even when he was a boy, he longed to be in his father's house. Learning God's word and talking about it with his teachers. Throughout his entire life, he was blameless. No one could ever lay any blame for anything against Jesus his entire life. He always treasured God's word more than riches. He was never once tempted to do anything wrong because he wanted money. And our Lord Jesus never once forgot God or his law. He delighted in them so much that never for a moment did he forget what was good. Did he forget what was right? Brothers and sisters, this is a Savior you can rely on. When you turn to Christ in faith, remember that you are turning to a God, to a Savior who is perfect in every respect, that you are relying on a righteousness which cannot fail, which will never come up short for you, which leaves you with nothing more to claim before the judgment of God. Praise God. For such a Savior. Psalm 119 begins by declaring blessedness. Blessed. Blessed are those. And you may remember that in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5. He begins by saying blessed. Blessed. We call them the Beatitudes. And one of the things he says is. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the sort of person Psalm 119 describes person who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Brothers and sisters, remember that your, your hunger and thirst, may you be a people who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And remember that those longings are satisfied in Christ, your perfect Savior. May we be a people who admire God's law and strive to walk in it and know that in Christ... We have a perfect Savior. A perfect Savior through whom we have justification and who conforms us evermore to the pattern of God's will. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for this small part of your word which so powerfully sets your word before us. Father, we pray that you would give us a heart to know you, a heart to delight in your will, and we pray, O oh Lord, that even as we fall so far short of that perfection and holistic devotion that Psalm 119 describes, we pray that we might have our eyes set fully on Christ our Savior, a perfect Savior. Thank you, O oh Lord, that as we stand in Him, that we need have no doubt that we will fall before your judgment. For as we stand in Christ... We have an absolute perfection upon which we can always rely. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.